Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we're meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. As you remain standing, you can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, which is where we're going to be today. 1 John chapter 2. And John writes this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You may be seated. Before I pray, I just want to set before you what it is that we're doing during this season that we call the Paschal season, the the run-up to Good Friday and to Resurrection Sunday. In this Paschal series, we are calling this Redemption Accomplished. And so what we're putting before you during this season from the Word of God are the various accomplishments that Christ himself got for us in his life, death, and resurrection. We are looking at the things that, are, that have been accomplished for us. And so we're lifting up the accomplishments of Christ like a, like a diamond and turning it in the light so that each week you have something for your faith to rest on. You have something to land on with your hope. And so last Lord's Day, uh, Pastor Jeremy preached on ransom. That one part of the atonement of Christ where he purchased us from the slave block and led us through that ransom, that purchased ransom, into the freedom that we have as the children of God. And today I'm going to lift before you another part of the accomplishment of Christ on the cross, and that is the propitiatory sacrifice, the sacrifice of propitiation which Christ offered to the Father on our behalf on the cross. And all of this is so that your faith and your hope and your life might come to rest in and receive afresh that which Christ has accomplished for us as his people. And so let us pray. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would take that which Christ has accomplished and you would bring that to us afresh today for our faith so that there might be a true reviving and a true renewal as the gospel is preached today a reviving and renewal of of the hearts of everyone in this room, but also of this church as a whole for the glory of your name that would lead out, reverberate into the community in which we live because we know that your gospel accomplishes this and pray that your gospel would accomplish it today. In Jesus' name we pray and amen. You know, we talk about the fact that the church, that we are the people of the future in the present that we are the church, we are an outpost of the future in the present. But there's one thing that we have to deal with in the present 
that we will not have to deal with in the future. There is one thing that the church has to handle now that when we get into the future, we will not have to handle. There is one thing that we have to deal with on a regular basis that we will not have to deal with when we get into the new heavens and the new earth and enter fully and finally into our future, and that is sin. When we get there, the people of the future will be fully and finally the people of the future, and we won't have to talk about sin, we won't have to deal with sin, we won't have to mess with sin, and even better, sin won't be messing with us. It'll be, it'll be all done, it'll be all something in the past, and we'll simply sing the, song, the songs of the Lamb, the songs of the redeemed. But right now, in the now, we have to deal with it. It's something we have to deal with. And John has a concern for how the church deals with sin. And notice what he says to them in, in verse 1. He says, my little children. Now, John is not writing simply to the wee ones of the church. This is an affectionate term that John has for the church, my little children. And this is unique. Normally, normally God's people are oftentimes addressed as children. Sometimes they're addressed as little children. But here, John uses the possessive, my little children. This is a term of endearment. These people are important to John. And this is probably like the book of Revelation. First John is probably a circular letter, a letter intended to go around the postal route there in Asia Minor, the similar same churches that the book of Revelation are written to. There's no specific church that this is written to, but we know that John probably was somewhere in the Ephesian area. He was a pastor of that church for a long time. And because this is no, there's no specific pastoral issue here and no direct letter, it's just, it's just to the churches that will be in the area where he was serving in, but they are very dear to him. And they are churches that have to deal with sin. They have to handle sin. And so he wants them affectionately to know how it is that they can handle and deal with the sin that they bring to the table. And church, the reason why this is important, the reason why learning how to handle sin is so important for the church, so important for you, so important for me, so important for us, and so important for the world, listen, is because guilt is a deadly entanglement to the past. Guilt is a deadly entanglement and, a, and an enchainment and a slavery to the past. But forgiveness is the gracious opening to a new future. And so many people don't live out into a new future because of the guilt they're carrying from sin in the past. They have not received forgiveness for sin and therefore cannot walk in the freedom that we have in Christ into the new future that forgiveness provides for us. And that comes oftentimes in a, a handful of ways. Number one, we don't confess our sin, so we carry the guilt around. Number two, we carry guilt feelings around even if we are not guilty anymore because we've confessed our sins. And then thirdly, those magnificently wonderful people in your life who love to remind you of everything you've ever done wrong. I have a method for those people 
It's called a kick in the teeth. It's called playing God. It's called stepping into the place of God and refusing to give to others what they themselves are gladly to receive from God. And so what happens is it binds us instead of freeing us into the future that God has for us. And so we have to deal with this. And so John unfolds for us how the church is to deal with its relationship to sin. And the first thing John says is in verse 7 is this. He says this in verse 7 of chapter 1. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the first thing John says is, look, man, walk in the light. When you walk in the light, light what? Light exposes, and that's good news. Light exposes, and light, what does it do? Light exposes the sin, but it doesn't lead you away from fellowship. You see, everything in the Bible is counter to the cranky way we live in sin and the way the world lives and the way we ape the world. We say light exposes, so hit the road. John says light exposes, run into fellowship. Run into the people, run into the fellowship. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and guess what's waiting there? The blood of Jesus Christ in the midst of the fellowship of God's people with God to cleanse us from all of our sins. So the first thing we do is we walk in the light, we walk into the fellowship, and we walk into the blood of Jesus. The second thing we do is we simply acknowledge that we sin. Look at verses 8 and 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. I got news for you. You sin. I sin. We sin. And the self-deception is to think that you don't live in sin. How many times do we talk about self-deception as those people who are living in sin are self-deceived? That's not what John says. John says here that the self-deceived are those who don't think they have sin, but everybody has sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Some of you live in radical self-deception because you can't just own the fact that you contribute sin in life. You deceive yourselves. And then he says in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. So the first thing is walk in the light, walk into the fellowship, walk into the cleansing blood. Secondly, we sin, you sin, so don't live in self-deception, don't turn God into a liar, don't turn truth on his head, just own it. Get used to saying these words. I did it. Just get used to saying it. I did it. That's what you got to do. Thirdly, we not only recognize that we have sin, we confess it. It's not complicated. Walk in the light, own your sin, confess your sin. Verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Notice what he says, if you confess your sins. How many of you can confess your sins and then say, yeah, but... How many of you confess your sins and then say, yeah, with the circumstances? 
Yeah, but it's kind of, it wasn't all sin. Listen to me, church. The only kind of sins that Jesus went to the cross for and the only kind of sins that can be forgiven are the real ones. Not the fake ones, not the perceived ones, not the possible ones, not the minor ones, sins. We're we're so used to just not laying it out there. It's not partial kind of excuse, not real sins that we confess, it's confess your sins. And then guess what? It's on God to keep his word. It's on God to do the just thing when you confess your sin. And the just thing and the faithful thing for God to do when you confess your sins is to forgive you of all of your sins. You see, so you see, this, this should be the place where we put on display for the world what happens with sin. But we spend so much time living like the world, acting like the world, and dealing with sin like the world. They want to walk in darkness, cover it up. They want to blame everybody else for their sin. And if they have to confess something to God, they want to make excuses for why they did it. But the church doesn't do that. We walk in the light, walk into the fellowship, get cleansed, own our sin, confess it, he forgives it, and we roll on. It's just that straightforward. But then fourthly, we flee sin. Okay, we also flee sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So we have to deal with sin. We can't say we don't have sin, but we're also supposed to flee sin. We're not supposed to trifle with it. We're not supposed to mess with it. We're not supposed to be okay with it. We're not supposed to make a truce with it. We're not supposed to be comfortable with it while acknowledging the reality of it and the regularity of it in our lives, it doesn't mean we somehow sign a contract with it to be okay with it. We seek to flee sin. I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. But you won't always meet that moment. You won't always flee sin. I will not always flee sin. That's what John says. I am writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. So what is it that the faithful and just God does? And what is it that the faithful and just God did for those who do sin? What did the faithful and just God do? And what does the faithful and just God do for those who are the if anyone sins? How many of you here are in the boat of if anyone does sin? Raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, you're lying and you're self-deceived and you need to repent right now. So let me ask you this boat. How many of you are in the boat of if anyone does sin, raise your hand. All right, good. The rest of you are still self-deceived and the elders will see you after church. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, is that everybody in this room is in that boat, whether your hand goes up or not, you're confused. 
Okay? This is just the reality of life, and, and the church needs to be bold about this reality. John is writing so that we may not sin, but if we do sin, what is it that there is for those who actually find themselves in that category? Well, the answer for those who belong to Jesus is actually really good news. If you sin, there's actually really good news. This is so the opposite, right? We tell our children, if you sin, gonna be some bad news. God says to his children, if you sin, I got some good news. But that's not to send us off, some of you are thinking, but that sends us off sinning again. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The fact that there's good news on the other side of struggling with sin means that we're free to move into holiness and righteousness and free to pursue those things. It's guilt that locks us in from ever wanting to pursue righteousness and holiness because we live knowing that we can never get there. It's forgiveness that frees us to work our, our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work within us. You see, this is exactly what John is saying, but if you do sin, I have good news for you, not bad news. And look at what he says. The first thing he says is this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if you do find yourself sinning as a believer, if you do find yourself sinning as a Jesus follower, the first thing that you need to know is you have someone in the throne room in heaven who is there to defend you. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's the language of the text. In other words, we have someone in heaven to defend us. And the advocate who is there is the God, man, Messiah, righteous one, Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this word, this word advocate, is it's the word that we're all familiar with if we've been in the church long enough. It's parakletos, and it's a word that is used exclusively of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. John's the only one that uses this word in all of his letters. No other writers of the, of the New Testament use this word. John's the only one that uses it, and it's always used of the Holy Spirit everywhere else except for this one place here. And here, John uses it of Jesus. That's why when Jesus says, you will have the, the, the advocate will come for you, the parakletos comes, he calls him another comforter. Because the first parakletos, the first defender, is Jesus himself. So if you sin, the first thing you need to know as a believer is this. You have a defender, an advocate that is before the Father himself. This is a legal term. You have one in heaven who is before the Father. This is very important that you guys understand this, especially you children and young people, because we're saying something and we're not saying other things, okay? John is saying if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. In other words, you have one before the Father who is ready and always there to speak in your defense. One who is there always to plead your cause. Now this here, what Jesus is speaking of here, what John is speaking of here, is not about justification, okay? Not about justification. Because justification is that once for all declaration that remains and abides all the time. 
Our justification does not admit of the Richter scale. Our justification does not admit of, up, of ups and downs. Our justification does not move with our performance, okay? That's not what our justification does, okay? Our justification is if we have a good day, then, then our justification is good. If we have a bad day, then we should struggle with our justification. Our justification is the same all the time. It's our fellowship, our relationship that has issues. And you'll notice this is the context. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse seven, but we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you'll notice what's going on here is not a renewal of your justification. But Jesus stands in to defend us before the Father if anyone sins for the restoration of fellowship that can be broken, okay? So I'll use an example, okay? My relationship with my wife is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later if I have time, my relationship with my wife is not defined by sin. So we were like, yeah, but we know you. Different story, different time. Doesn't fit my analogy, all right? Uh, my relationship with my, my wife is not defined by sin, it's defined by covenant, okay? My wife and I are in a covenant relationship with one another. And if I sin against her or she sins against me, that doesn't wreck the covenant. We're still covenantally married to one another. What it does is it gets in the way of our fellowship with one another. It gets in the way of our relationship with one another. It clogs up the exchange that we have together. The same is true in our relationship with God. Can you imagine if every time you sinned, the, the new covenant broke? And you, had, and you had to figure out a way to repair that? Can you imagine if every time you sinned, your justification imploded? <laughs> and you had to get re-justified again? You're, some of you are looking at me laughing, but that's how you live. You live as if that's the case. If anyone sins, the problem is not a change in their status before God. It's the relationship gets mucked up, you see. There's a clog in the relationship. But if anyone sins, guess what? We have one there who's defending us and defending on our behalf, you see. Now, it's important we understand this. When John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is not saying that Jesus as our defender is before the Father defending our sin. It's not defending our sin. Okay. Secondly, he is not before the Father pleading you're innocent. Well, he didn't do it. The Father's like, wait a minute, I'm omniscient. I know exactly what he did, right? So no, he's not pleading our innocence because we're not. Or Jesus is not pleading attenuating circumstances to the Father. Well, you know, he's really had a hard week. But see, that's what we want. We, we want in our goofiness for Jesus to stand before the Father and plead with our circumstances or plead with our innocence or, 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 or somehow find a way to defend our sin. That's not what Jesus is defending. 
When Jesus as our advocate is pleading our cause before the Father, he's not defending our sins, he is defending us. Look at what John says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He doesn't defend our sins, he defends the anyone who sins. He defends the one who sins. So if I sin, Jesus steps in before the Father with me to defend me before the Father. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this? Why can he do this? Right, for some of you, it's like, why would he? The self-esteem people, it's like, why would he? I'm this lowly sinner. For the self-righteous people, why can he? How can he pull this off? How can he defend me before God if I sin? And here's the answer, church, listen. Because the one who is our defender is also more than our defender. He is not simply our defender. He is more than that. And he is more than that with the Father. Look at what John says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So the orientation of this is Godward, okay? The orientation of this and the direction of this is Godward. We have an advocate with the Father, okay? Well, who is this advocate with the Father? Look at what John says. He is the propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus is more than our defender. Jesus is himself also our propitiation before the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. So the sins that the anyone does, the reason why Jesus defends the anyone before the Father when we sin is because Jesus is also for the propitiation of, he is the propitiation for the sins of the one who commits the sin, you see. He is the propitiation for our sins. And the question is, what does propitiation mean? Why is this so important? Well, in order for us to understand propitiation, we have to understand a number of things, okay? The first, and this is very important that you guys follow this. The first is that propitiation has to do with God's holy love. The only reason why there is propitiation at all is because of God's holy love. But God's holy love reveals itself, listen, God's holy love reveals itself in righteous anger and wrath against sinners and sin. You see, we, have, we also have a problem with that in our day. We have a problem with God's righteous anger 
and we have a problem with God's wrath against sinners and sin. And there's all kinds of reasons why we have problems with this, and I don't have the time to develop it, but let me just say a couple of things real quickly. Number one, we have a problem with God's righteous anger and wrath against sin because we have a very low view of sin. We think sin is kind of nothing. It's really not that big of a deal. The second reason why we think that God being righteously angry and wrathful against sinners and sin is because we have a very low view of the holiness of God. We don't understand the white, hot, pure holiness of God. And then thirdly, most of all of our examples of righteous anger come from looking at unrighteous anger from people. We don't have really good examples of righteous anger and righteous wrath. All of our earthly examples are just bad and we recoil against them. So if you combine, if you're looking to make a drink and you put in this drink a low view of sin, a low view of the holiness of God, and really a wrong view of what righteous judgment and wrath is because of the way we see it done wrongly among men, and you shake that drink up and you drink it, no wonder we're drunk in a way against God's holiness and his wrath in, the, in that way. Because we just can't see it for what it actually is. We think God's anger and God's wrath is a knee-jerk, fly-off-the-handle reaction against anything that doesn't go his way. And that's a wrong way to see the righteous anger and wrath of God. God's anger is his calm, deliberate, and proportionate way in which his eternal holiness responds to sin. Let me say that again. God's anger is his calm, deliberate, and proportionate way in which his eternal holiness responds to sin. God doesn't knee-jerk react. It's calm. It's deliberate. It's purposeful, and it's proportionate. It answers to the offense against his actual holiness, which we ourselves really don't understand or see. And so you see, in order to understand propitiation, we have to understand that God's wrath his righteous anger abides on sinners and sin. And what propitiation is, this is so important, what propitiation is, is it's God's own loving answer to his own wrath. Propitiation is God's own loving answer to his own wrath. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10 of 1 John. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 and verse 10 locates the place from which propitiation comes. Chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see where the propitiation comes from? The propitiation comes from the love of God. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God's own love is what answers God's own wrath for us, you see. This is, and that's absolutely vital to see. It's very, very important that you understand that propitiation is Godward. Propitiation is that aspect of the atonement that answers to God's justice, it answers to God's wrath, it answers to God's anger, but it answers these things because it comes from God's love, you see. It flow, his love steps in and answers his own wrath. Now this is vital that we understand this. If we look at Hebrews chapter 2, turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. This word propitiation is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. Chapter 2 and verse 17, you'll notice again the Godward aspect, the Godward direction of propitiation. Hebrews 2.17, the Bible says this, speaking of Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, watch this, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Notice the direction. The direction is Godward. But then it says this, in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, Jesus took on our humanity so that in service to God, he could offer the sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God. But you have to understand, and this is very, very important, church, please stay with me on this. Sometimes the way in which propitiation is preached, propitiation is preached to make it look like there's a breach in the Trinity. There's an argument in the Trinity there's a rift in the Trinity. There's a pitting against the persons of the Trinity. And this is how it would look. God the Father, maybe you have this in, in, in your home. One parent gets mad and the other parent, other parent feels like they have to step in and absorb the anger of the other parent against this parent so that the kids don't get it. You might have ever had that happen in your home, okay? So every single time I think I get righteously angry about something, my wife is, always standing in, taking the brunt, not wanting it to go where it's gotta go. This is something, a conversation we have a lot in our home. So I know I, I live with this, I get it. And most of the time the righteous, my anger's unrighteous anyways, so she's right and I'm wrong, so there you go. Um, but here's, what, here's the thing, we have this idea that propitiation is the angry father going to let out his just anger on sinners and Jesus comes along and says, no, don't do it, no, don't do it, I'll take it, I'll take it instead, put it on me instead. And then, all, and then Jesus pacifies this angry father as he steps in and takes the wrath instead of us. That is heresy. That's heretical. That breaks the unity of God, divides the persons of the Trinity, and is not scriptural. The scriptural 
gift of propitiation and the propitiatory aspect of the atonement is before the foundation of the world in the covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit came together in full unity and the Father said to the Son, I will send you to be the propitiatory sacrifice for this people. And the Son said to the Father, I will go for this people. And the Spirit said, I will make all of this effective. And together it was the triune God out of love that conspired to answer God's own wrath against us because love answered it. You see the difference? Because some of us then live our whole lives thinking that God the Father is on the other side of Jesus still mad at us. That's not true. That's not true at all. It's vital that we understand that the propitiatory sacrifice of the Son to the Father is because of the love of the Father gives His Son. And the love of the Father offers the propitiatory sacrifice back for Himself. This is not us standing into one of those juvenile gods, Zeus or Athena in the old world, and offering them the libations to turn, have them turn their wrath and turn to blessing in our lives, because this is not the sacrifice we offer. If you read Homer, these guys are always sacrificing to the gods because the gods are like, some, um, I don't, if I say any, any grade, I'm going to get in trouble. They're like sixth graders. Um, sorry, except for Elijah. Um, they're just, I mean, I mean they're just, they're just that, that's what Peter Lightheart calls them, the juvenile gods. They act like they're in logic school, okay? That's the way they act there. And then you have to somehow pacify this God. That is not the propitiation we're talking about here at all. Here, the Father sends the Son who freely comes, and the Son freely offers the propitiatory sacrifice because of the love that the Father has for us that would go so far as to answer His own wrath against us. So there's no break in the Trinity at all. A couple of other things before I bring this to a close this morning. First, it's vital that we understand that in the propitiation that Jesus offers for us, he, do, he does not, can, this is, stay with me, he does not cancel his wrath. Propitiation is not the canceling of the wrath of God. Propitiation is not just God getting over it. Propitiation is not just God getting over his anger. He had a couple of days to think about it, and now he's not as mad as he was three days ago. That's not the case at all. Propitiation is not God withdrawing his wrath. Oh, I'll just pull it back. Church, listen to me. The propitiation that John is talking about, he is the propitiation for our sins. This propitiation is that the Father, out of His love, has diverted His wrath from you. It was headed for you, and He diverted it from you out of love. And He diverted it on to His own willing Son. And in His willing Son, listen, Jesus bore the wrath, 
answered the wrath, absorbed the wrath, appeased the wrath, exhausted the wrath, quenched the wrath, satisfied the wrath. There is no longer wrath for you or any of your sins because Jesus has answered the wrath for you and all of your sins. You are not, listen to me, you are not a sinner in the hand of an angry God. You are not a sinner in the hand of an angry God. You are a son or a daughter in the nail-scarred hands of love. That's where you are. You are held in God's hands, but they're not angry. They are nail-scarred and they are loving because he is the propitiation for our sins. And what this means, church, is this changes everything. That means, listen, this is so important. Just like sin is not the decisive factor in my relationship with my wife, the covenant is. We spend all of our lives thinking that sin is the decisive factor in our relationship with God, and it's not. Sin is not the decisive factor in your relationship with God anymore. The propitiation of Jesus Christ has changed everything. God, out of his love, did not want sin, your sin, to be the defining, bearing point of your relationship with him anymore. That is why if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for all of your sins because sin is not the defining point of your relationship relationship with God anymore. In Christ Jesus, the defining point of your relationship with God is his son. You see, what, God's, what God welcomes into his presence is the ever-abiding propitiation and persuasive defense that is his son. Listen to what he says. But if anyone does sin… We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. All wrath, all anger that could and should have come against your sin has been spent on the cross on his son. There is no angry God with you behind the face of Jesus. He is not angry with you. He is not angry with your sin. What he has done is already dealt with his anger with your sin in Jesus. We have this idea that somehow God tolerates us. He knows we're a little busted. He knows we're messed up, so he tolerates us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that for those who belong to Jesus, God approves of you. Did you know that? God approves of you in Christ. God delights in you in Christ. God actually likes you in Christ. 
you can now please God in Christ. By who you are and by what you do, you can please God in Christ. And you want to know what? God is pleased with you in Christ. So let, let me, let me, let, let's close with this. Just listen. You're approved, delighted in, loved, liked, can be pleasing to God, and God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ because the propitiation was for all of our sins. But then you say to me, because some of you just can't accept this good news, you can't. You say, well, if God is not angry with me ever again for my sins, then why do I suffer and why is there discipline? What did the writer of Hebrews actually say? Whom the Lord is angry with, he disciplines? What does the Bible actually say? Whom the Lord, say it, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So when he disciplines you, he's not disciplining you out of anger. He's disciplining you out of love because he knows that if he lets you go on in that sin, that's really bad for you. So he's going to stop you from it. Church, you are loved. So come and eat. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that you would take this good news and make it good in a whole new way today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.